This week then, let's cover some otology, and let's look at the anatomy of the human ear. Let's talk about the main parts of the ear, let's talk about the corresponding function, and then right at the end, we'll add a sprinkling of clinical relevance that really helps bring it all together. divided into three main parts, simply referred to as the outer, the middle, and the inner ear. Each individual part has a bespoke function that ultimately contributes to the overall autological functions of balance and hearing. Now, the ear also has some really cool physiology involved with controlling eye movements, but I won't go into that in this basic introduction. Instead then, let's look at the major divisions and explore a little bit of anatomy that sets a solid foundation to explore autology. This starts with the outer ear then. The outer ear consists of your pinna, or the external ear, the ear canal, also known as the external auditory meatus, and ends at the tympanic membrane, or eardrum. This part of the ear is responsible for collecting and funneling sound so that it can be transmitted to the inner parts. The individual parts of the pinna are named, but we won't cover it at this stage. The ear canal is not a straight tube. There is significant anatomical variation from person to person, which makes any clinician's job initially very difficult when looking inside. Otoscopy can be challenging, and this is the reason that we pull the pinna up and back in adults when looking in to straighten the outer portions. The outer canal is soft tissue and cartilage, but the inner section is bone. When you look at the lateral part of the skull, that bony section is what you are looking at in the external auditory meatus. The whole canal then is layered by skin, and the outermost layer of skin is called epithelium. And this epithelium is special here. It grows outwards from the ear drum. It is ultimately shed at the hair-bearing portion of the ear canal, and here it forms wax. Now this process is the reason you should never use cotton buds or Q-tips to clean your ears. The old idiom goes, nothing smaller than your elbow should be placed in your ear. Moving on to the tympanic membrane then. The tympanic membrane, or eardrum, is a layer of skin that's about 0.1 millimetres thick and around one centimetre in diameter. Its epithelium also migrates out in all directions and its skin is continuous with the skin of the ear canal. On the outer rim, there is a layer of connective tissue called the annulus and this anchors the lower portions of the drum to the bone of the canal, forming a tense part of the eardrum called the pars tensor. This acts like the rim of a drum, the percussive instrument. Superiorly, there is no annulus, and so the upper portions of the drum are often termed the attic, and this area is weak or flaccid, hence its name, pars flaccida. If your job as a clinician is to examine the ear, always check the attic, because they be dragons, at least sometimes. By that I mean pathology can hide away here unnoticed, and if you're interested in this, see cholesteatoma. Now, the tympanic membrane is a window into the next part, the middle ear. The drum is connected to the ossicular chain, which traverses the middle ear space. The middle ear is a bony resonating chamber that connects to the outside world via the eustachian tube that drains at the back of your nose, or nasopharynx. I'm sure you've all experienced this tube in action when experiencing pressure changes such as changes in altitude, and all of a sudden your ears pop. The eustachian tube functions to equalise this pressure, and this can be mimicked by holding your nose and blowing, which forces air up the tube. The facial nerve also traverses the middle ear, but that's a story for another time. What I do want to focus on here is the three smallest bones in the body, called the malleus, or hammer, the incus, or anvil, and the stapes, or stirrup, each name acting as a pretty good descriptor of the bone shapes. 
These bones pivot and have a lever function, amplifying sound up to about 30 decibels. And they do this by concentrating energy and force from a relatively large diameter of the vibrating tympanic membrane to the tiny one millimetre diameter we see at the stapes footplate and the oval window that literally plugs into the inner ear, connecting the middle and the inner ear spaces. If you're trying to picture what I mean by this, think about what you'd prefer to be hit in the face with, a shoe or a stiletto heel, and you get the gist. That stiletto, that smaller concentrated force, is going to cause more damage. Now in reality there's loads of cool biomechanics and physics at play here, but that's a talk for another time maybe. Last and certainly not least, the inner ear. The inner ear contains all the workings of the ear, then all housed in the bony petrous temporal bone, the hardest bone in the human body, or at least one of them. Collectively, the inner ear is referred to as the labyrinth, given for its maze-like complicated structure, and I can just imagine how this was named when the initial anatomists were drilling into this area on first discovery, thinking, I'm lost. Of this, there is a bony outer labyrinth and a membranous inner counterpart, both of which are fluid-filled spaces and contain the delicate inner organs that we will cover in detail another time. There are two functional distinct parts of the labyrinth, the balance apparatus called the vestibule or vestibular apparatus, and the more familiar hearing part named the cochlea because of its snail-like appearance. And the whole of the labyrinth is wired to the brain via the vestibular cochlear nerves or cranial nerve 8. Okay then, the sprinkling of clinical relevance right at the end. An infection of the ear is termed otitis, and depending on which part of the ear is infected, we add an additional Latin term to clarify location. Outer ear infections then, anywhere from the pinna to the tympanic membrane, is termed otitis externa, and often related to water exposure. Middle ear infections are called otitis media, and are more commonly associated with upper respiratory tract infections, and much more common in children. Finally, inner ear infections, well, they're slightly different. They come in two different types. If the whole of the inner ear is infected, we term this labyrinthitis, and this is associated with acute onset hearing loss and severe continuous vertigo. If a virus affects only the vestibular nerves, then we'll term this vestibular neuritis, and the patient will experience only vertigo and no associated hearing loss. So you can see the three major divisions of the ear have a phenomenal underlying anatomy in each with a bespoke function contributing to hearing and balance. When Sam listens to this, he's going to laugh. He knew that I'd never cover this in five minutes. Anything about the year? No chance. Catch you next time on Dissectable Me.